beginning at Jeremiah 10, verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. And now turning to Psalm 99, the first five verses. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and holy name. Holy is He. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. And then finally we turn to the New Testament. to Acts chapter 17 beginning at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we come to you this morning to learn from you in your word. We put aside all our own predilections. We put aside all our own presumptions. And we seek to hear from your spirit in your word, O Lord. Please teach us, reach us, and change us by your word. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the first phrase proper in the Apostles' Creed. Last week we looked at the foundation for the Creed, that is, our belief in the Word of God. Because the Word of God is the foundation and source for all that we know about God, ourselves, and the world truly. It is the source of what the Creed professes. But now as we turn to the Creed, we begin with God. Now, this makes sense because we want to make sense of the world, don't we? We want to have a higher sense of purpose and of worship and meaning. It has been said, everybody worships something. The only choice you get is what to worship. We are made to worship And so here we come to the God of Scripture, 
to learn who he is that we might worship him rightly. Because some worship creatures or nature. Some worship themselves. Others fashion gods of their own devising to worship. But the difference with Christianity is that it gives us an objective God who is revealed in the Bible to worship. I have said that in conjunction with our Apostles' Creed, I have been looking and giving you some statistics from a recent study done by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research about the state of theology in America today. And so you'll see in your insert, I have two statements for you that people were asked whether they agreed or disagreed with them. The first statement was, God knows everything that occurs in the world, but does not determine all that happens. Now, it may be of some concern to you that 60%, only 60% of people in America agree with this statement. But I think it should be more shocking to you that only 65% of people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians believe this statement. So God knows a bunch of stuff. He just can't really do anything about it. The second statement is that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And 50% of evangelical Christians self-proclaimed agreed with that statement. So what do we have here? We have here that a majority of American evangelicals believe God is not in control... And he doesn't really care how we worship him. He doesn't even really care if we believe in him. That's shocking. Now when we come to something like this, we're faced with a crossroads. There's two things we can do. The first and perhaps most obvious to us is that we can complain about this. And we can say it's horrible and it's miserable. And it shouldn't be the case. But the second is, is that we can do something about it. We can actually learn and understand who God is, why it's important that He's worshipped the way that He's worshipped, why He is sovereign and in control, and then we can teach others, and we can see and affect the American church, and by God's grace and the power of His Word and His Spirit, see the truth of God increase, even in 2017, even in America. So let's look then this morning... And what the Bible teaches us about God the Father. There are three things that I want us to see from our texts this morning. The first is that the Lord is the only God. There are no other gods. Allah is not God. The God who proclaims that he's not found in the New Testament is not God. All of the varying myths... And foreign gods are not God. Only the Lord is God. The second thing we see is that the Lord is almighty. That the Lord is powerful. That he is in control. And because of this, he is worthy of our worship. The third and final thing that I want us to see is that the Lord is the creator. He is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all mankind. 
The Lord is the only God. The Lord is almighty. And the Lord is the creator. Well, let's begin then by looking at what the Bible teaches us about the Lord being the only God. The Bible describes God throughout its pages as being wholly other from us. He is the creator of all things. He is the one who is sovereign. He is in control. We depend on him. He does not depend on us. But the main way in which the Bible describes God as distinct from all of the other so-called gods are two ways. First, that the Lord our God is the only living God and he is the only true God. Jeremiah says this in chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Now there is a context for what Jeremiah is saying. If you're in the passage, you will notice that this entire chapter is built around a contrast between the living and true God, and if I can put it this way, the false and the dead gods. And what Jeremiah is trying to do is to tell Israel that their way is not to be the way of the world. The way of the world is to make up gods. He says in verse 3 that they craft them. They take a piece of wood and they cut it down and they begin to make a god. And then to make it more godlike in verse 4, he says they decorate them. They put silver and gold. But the first problem with all of these gods is that they are completely useless. They're not alive, so they can't act. Now, think about what a reversal this is. A god that needs to be made by its worshiper. They cannot speak. They cannot walk. They can have absolutely no effect on life. Look at verse 5. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Now, just get that image in your mind. Have you ever seen a scarecrow? They don't move or do anything, do they? Have you ever had the experience of being in a field or seeing a picture in which there's a brave crow perched on the scarecrow? And the scarecrow can't do anything about it. The scarecrow is supposed to defend the field. He can't even defend himself. Why? Because he's not alive. He's useless. He's worthless. That is what the other so-called gods are. They have no effect at all on our lives. Now, if we contrast this with the God of the Bible, God is the God who speaks. In fact, it is His speaking that brings into existence all of creation. And God is continually telling His people about Himself. That's really the subject of the Bible. It's God's speaking to his people about himself. He speaks to Noah. He speaks to Abraham. He speaks to David. He speaks to Paul. He speaks to John. He's constantly telling us who he is. But God does more than speak. He also acts. He acts and he intervenes in history. Virtually all of the Bible is about God relating to people and acting in their lives. Now, of course, there are cosmic actions in the Bible, like the flood, for example. 
But if you think about it, the flood really is an action that is primarily directed toward Noah and the relationship that God has with Noah than it is the cosmos. God speaks to his people. And it is the case that God is not just an explanation of nature, like the so-called gods. Nature is actually affected by God. You see, false gods are contrived by people who don't know why things are happening. So if you wake up in the morning and you see thunder and lightning and you're scared and you don't know why it's happening, if you happen to be in a warm portion of southern Europe, you think it's Zeus making thunderbolts and throwing them against the earth. And if you happen to be in a colder part of Europe, you think it's someone named Thor swinging a hammer. But the whole concept is you're making up a deity simply to explain what you don't understand. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible explains himself to us in his word so that we understand who he is. He is not an explanation for thunder and lightning and storms. We know who he is and we understand thunder and lightning and storms in the context of who he is. The second problem with the so-called false gods is that they are not just not alive, they are not true. They are false. And this is the case that whenever we begin to imagine gods other than the Lord, we bring falsehoods in. The Bible tells us that these gods are objectively false. They don't do the things that God does. They don't create, they don't speak, they don't love. But they are also subjectively false because they are made in our image. Now, I want you to think back for a moment, back perhaps to college days or high school or when you're reading uh, books for school, of Greek mythology. Think of all of the famous Greek gods and goddesses. Zeus and Hera and Athena and Hercules. What are they? They're basically people that are bigger than life. They have all of the same foibles that people have. They could be deceived. They lie. They hurt other people. They're just like people, except they actually have a greater capacity to do damage with their sin than people do. When Zeus gets angry, he wipes out a city. If I get angry, my kids get a little bit miserable. You see, false gods are simply made in our image. But when we confess that we believe in the true God of the Scripture, it is actually not primarily for our benefit. It's not so that we can understand Him. It's not so that He can explain things to us. It's because we confess that God is real true and alive. And because that is true, we believe. We begin with God, and we believe because He is who He is. But God is not simply a more advanced version of us. He is not just the living God. He is also the everlasting God, Jeremiah tells us. Now, what does this mean? I think Jeremiah is telling us this truth that is found in the Scriptures to help us to distinguish God from us. You see, there is a sense in which we can project ourselves onto God. 
even if we're not making a false god, we make God in our image. So there are theories, for example, run amok today, that God or the gods are simply aliens from another planet far, far away who are more advanced than we are. Or perhaps I think the best illustration of this and a critique of secular Western philosophy is found in the movie Groundhog Day. You remember the movie. Bill Murray gets up, and every day that he gets up, it's the exact same day. So he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows where the pothole with water is to step in. He knows the song that's coming on the radio. He knows the waitress is going to drop the dish. And he remarks, and he says, well, maybe that's what God is. Maybe he's just been around longer than everybody else. So he knows everything. We cannot look at God as simply being more powerful and smarter than us. He's wholly distinct from us. And that's why Jeremiah calls him everlasting. And this is hard for us to get our arms around because we have no frame of reference in our lives. It's like if I asked you to describe for me in detail what the number pi is like. You'd say, well, it's 3.14. Really? Well, yeah, and? And depending on how good you are at memorizing, you'll go out however many number of digits. But no matter how good you are at memorizing, you'll never finish, right? Because it just goes on and on and on and on. It's hard to think about a number that goes on and on and on and on. That's different from like seven. I can do that on my fingers. I know what seven is. Pi's a little bit harder. That's what it's like with God. Because you see, with God, he is from everlasting. That means there was never a time when God was not. Ever. And this explains the nature of existence, because everything in existence only exists because of God. But secondly, God has no end. And that means there will never be a time when God is not. He is from everlasting. We never have to imagine what life would be like without God. We never have to fear what will happen to God. God is a constant comfort to us forever because he is everlasting. Well, it is one thing to say that there is one God. This was the great pronouncement of faith of Israel from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But we can't just compare God to the false gods. We must also describe him positively. What is he like as he's found in the scriptures? And this is where we come to our second point. That the Lord is almighty. This brings us to God's true place in the world. It helps us to understand our relationship to him. You see, it's not just that God is powerful. He is all-powerful. Lots of things are powerful, right? Storms, animals, the smell of some cooking. Only God is all-powerful. There is nothing that can stop Him. Nothing that can stand in His way. We must remember this as we relate to God. This is who He is. There's a very... Curious and helpful scene in Genesis chapter 17. As God comes to Abraham to formalize the relationship that they have with one another. 
God has already spoken to Abraham, called him to the promised land from Genesis 12 onward. But here he makes a formal binding relationship with Abraham, the covenant. And the very first thing that God says to formalize and to cement that relationship is he says, I am the Lord God Almighty. It's the first thing he says. Because he wants Abraham to understand that in this relationship, there is nothing God cannot do. There is no promise that he will break. He is all-powerful. Nothing can stop him. The Bible finds other ways to describe this almighty aspect to God. In Jeremiah chapter 10, Jeremiah says that God is the king. He is the everlasting king. In Psalm 99, in verse 1, it's described by saying, The Lord reigns. He's in charge. That's R-E-I-G-N, not R-A-I-N. He's ruling. He's in charge. We see that the earth actually quakes before God in verse 1 of Psalm 99. And the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples, the psalmist tells us in verse 2. And a direct result or consequence of this is that we worship God. We worship God because of who He is. We worship God because of what He has done. And so Psalm 99 is indicative to us. It is an example of how we are to approach God. God reigns, so we are to tremble. God is great and exalted... So we are to praise His great and awesome name. Because of who God is, our response and action is one of worship. Verse 5 of Psalm 99 calls us to act, to exalt the Lord our God, to worship at His footstool. For holy is He. Now, this is, I think, why so many people don't believe. Have you ever wondered about that? Why so many people don't believe in God, or they say they're not sure God is real? It would seem to me to be very hopeless to believe in nothing. To think there's no purpose to the world. That it's completely random. There's no purpose to the end of my existence. That would seem to me to be a pretty hopeless thing. It would seem to me to be pretty foolish to believe in false gods like the Greek gods. That are just glorified men and women. But the reality is, people do not believe in God because they do not want to worship Him. You see, once you know who God is, the only appropriate response is worship. And people do not want to worship God. They do not want to submit to His will. They do not want to honor and adore Him. They want to reserve that honor for themselves. And so what they do is they paint God out of the picture. But the Bible does not give us that option. There is no way we can worship anyone other than God because only God is the true and living God. Only God is worthy of worship. But there is another way in which we see that the Lord is almighty. The psalmist describes it in verse 4. 
He says, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. You see, it is not just that God is perfect and righteous in himself. He is. But that's not the end of the story. You see, God also desires that that righteousness would be expressed throughout the world. God is the one who establishes equity, the psalmist tells us in verse 4. That means without God, there is no real sense of right and wrong. Right is, as Mao Zedong said, found at the barrel of a gun. It's just simply who has the most power. There is no objective right and wrong without God. God declares what is just. God declares what is equitable. Any other attempt to define justice is foolhardy. Just look at how much difficulty we have in our modern society trying to talk about justice. Now, unless you think this is just something the pastor thought up as a problem for the pulpit, this is something that philosophers have dealt with for thousands of years. Perhaps the best example of this is from one who did not believe in God, but who believed in what he called the will to power. That everything was about power and expressing power and getting one's will. Friedrich Nietzsche wrote this before. Suppose nothing else were given as real except our world of desires and passions, and that we could not get up or down or to any other reality besides the reality of our drives. Suppose, finally, we succeeded in explaining our entire instinctive life as the development and ramification of one basic form of the will. The will to power. What Nietzsche is saying here is, if you take God out of the equation, if there's no other reality beyond what we are in ourselves, the only thing that matters is power. There is no justice. And you see, the scriptures tell us that the Lord establishes justice. He establishes justice as his throne, the Bible tells us. He's described as one who loves justice, who reigns wisely and with justice. And this meets with our inner sense of justice, doesn't it? We don't like to see injustice done. It bothers us. It itches at us. If we see something that appears too unjust, well, we'll just get sit right at the computer and let everybody know about it on Facebook. Got to get it out there. But the reality is, is that really our problem is, is that God doesn't act on our timetable of justice. Any criticism of God's justice comes along these lines. What we want to see is that all injustices done against us are dealt with immediately and finally. But what we also want to see is any injustices we have visited upon others are met with patience and perseverance. We want God to work on our timing. But just because God doesn't work justice according to our timing does not mean he is not just. The scripture tells us he will put all things to right, 
That every tear will be wiped away. That all sin will be banished. That every unjust action will be done away from. And he will reign forever in justice and in equity. The The third thing that we see about the Lord in the scripture is that the Lord is the creator. He is the creator of all things. This is what we see as Paul comes to us in Acts chapter 17. What we confess about God actually goes beyond ourselves. Because after all, if God is the only true God, then he has to be the God of everyone. And this is what Paul tells us. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. There is no part of the world that God did not make. And therefore, it is not enough for us to simply believe ourselves. We have to tell others. Because if we know the reality of the world, how can we keep the reality of the world from others around us? Let me give you an illustration. Let's suppose that you go in to the office or into school tomorrow, and everyone around you says, You know, I'm so glad 2 plus 2 equals 5. Okay. And then someone replies, yes, everybody knows that 2 plus 2 equals 5. It's the way we should live our lives. And you say, but but 2 plus 2 equals 4. And they say, well, who are you to say that 2 plus 2 equals 4? What if I want it to be 5? Why do you need to tell me 2 plus 2 equals 4? Somewhere down the line, you're going to say, because it just is. That's the reality of the universe. If you don't believe it, nothing will work. Try to build a bridge. Try to make a computer. Try to balance your finances. You can't do any of it unless you acknowledge the reality that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, if that would drive us so bananas, how can we put up with people around us all the time that refuse to acknowledge the greatest part of reality in existence, namely that God is God and that he is the creator of all things. How does that not just grate on you when people say, well, you know, something came from nothing. I don't know how, but if the bang gets really big, and if we talk about billions and billions and trillions of years, somehow we get something from nothing. How does that not make you want to speak about the real reality of life? You see, we need to testify about who God is. Because he's true. And he's living. and He's the creator of all things. And this is actually the most universal way to describe God. That is, as the creator. It's one thing that we have in common with everyone. Now, we might not know how we came to exist. We might have a wrong idea about how we came to exist. But we all understand that common reality that we have come into existence, that we are created. And so this is what Paul does. Now, this is not just a newfangled way of apologetics. Paul comes to Athens in Acts chapter 17. And Athens was famous for its skeptics. They didn't want to believe anything they couldn't see or touch or measure. But at the same time, they were so religious 
that if you can believe it, they had an altar to a God they didn't know just in case he might be out there. Now that's taken religiosity to the nth degree. And what Paul does is he approaches them and he says, this God that you say you don't know, let me tell you about him. And let me tell you what he's done. He's the creator of all mankind. He's made everyone, including you and me. And it helps us to understand who God is because it gives us a point of reference in ourselves. And this point of reference is very helpful. Because of God, the world exists. Everything that we see depends upon God. If if we look at all the intricacies of the world, they come from God. We realize that we are not able to escape God because no matter where we go, God is there. We also need to understand that if God is the creator, he does not need us. That's the main distinction about idols. They need us. Anything we make, no matter how good it is, needs us. Your car needs you. If you don't maintain your car, what happens to your car? Falls apart, doesn't it? The most wonderful invention of the last 20 years, the smartphone. Can the smartphone make it without you? No way. My smartphone needs me and every one of my family's smartphones needs me. Because I'm constantly updating and checking and fixing. and work. Otherwise what? It doesn't work. It falls apart. Anything that we make needs us. But God does not need us because God created all mankind and creation. He is the creator and the sustainer of all men. And the Bible specifically describes God as the creator of all men. In verse 25 of Acts 17, he creates all mankind. In verse 26, he creates every nation. Now this may sound simple, but it is not. Because throughout history, men have denigrated other people and harmed them because they were different than they were. And they made excuses that said that these other people were unworthy of respect because of the place where they lived, or because of the color of their skin, or because of the patterns of their speech. But what Paul tells us in the scripture is that if we truly understand who God is, then it affects how we live and especially how we treat others. Because in one sense, everyone is my brother. We are all created by God. And where someone is from is God's choice, not my choice, not their choice. What someone looks like is God's choice. He has established it, Paul says. He has determined the allotted periods. He has set the boundaries. God is sovereign and in control. And what God does is more than create. He sustains. Paul quotes... The poet here. In him we live and move and have our being. Now this is true whether we believe it or understand it or not. We are completely dependent upon God. You would not be able to breathe now if God did not give you breath. Unless he was sustaining your life right now, 
keeping your brain functioning, your heart beating, sustaining you through food and water, you would not live. Now, we don't always believe that or understand that, but let me give you an illustration. Our family is going through a a transition as our children move, two of them now, out of the house, at least temporarily, at college. And I'm having to have discussions with them to remind them that there are certain things that they just take for granted that they get as support. That, you know, the cell phone doesn't pay its own bill. Dad does. That food doesn't leap from the grocery store to the refrigerator. Mom goes and gets it and puts it in. The car does not fill itself up with gas. And out of the kindness of his heart, Matthew doesn't write them free insurance policies. But you see, we do this for our children. And whether they understand it or not, that support is there. And as they grow and mature, they begin to understand what that means. Because when I was their age, I thought everything was free and easy too. But you see, it's the same way with God who sustains us. We can take Him for granted. We can even declare with great pontification, we're completely independent from you, God, and it doesn't make it true. The Bible tells us that. But for the work and the grace of God, we would cease to exist. Well, we saw last week that the foundation for all our beliefs was the Bible because it gives us the truth about God and ourselves. And today we saw that the starting point for our faith is outside ourselves. It is with God. That the Lord is the only true and living God. That the Lord alone is worthy of worship and that He is right in what He does. That the Lord is the creator of all things, including you and me. So where we begin is we begin with what God has said about himself. We begin with the knowledge and the belief that we believe in God the Father, Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom and your power and the way in which you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, we ask this morning that you would remind us by the power of your Spirit that we are dependent upon you and that in you we do indeed live and move and have our being. Please move us to praise, O Lord, for there is indeed none like you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen.